turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah chapter 4. It's wonderful to wake up this morning to a light dusting covering of Carolina snow. Um, my struggles this morning are not so much allergies as they are I'm fighting a cold, so you'll forgive me for not passing out hugs this morning, um, being careful of my handshakes as well. Uh, there are some fights that are worth having and other fights that are not. Um, it's hard to tell the difference. Um, growing up, I was told about an uncle of mine, my Uncle Jackie. I had never met him. Uh, he never met a fight he didn't like. He, uh, when he, he, he actually died in Turkey. Um, he was in the Air Force and was in a... Uh, horrible accident in a jeep and when they brought his body back for his uh, identification they were not able to id him because of there was so much damage to his body other than by the scars on his knuckles because uh, he had been in so many fights uh, growing up and so then i was born shortly after he had passed away and all my family said boy you remind us of jackie that that wasn't a great thing um and so growing up uh, trying to discern when's a fight worth having and when it isn't. It, I, I, I did not always do a good job with that. Uh, getting brake checked by a guy uh, on Route 70, uh, ended up stopping on a, an on-ramp, about to have a fight, not worth having. Um, a dog, an angry dog, chasing me and my kids. I had one in a stroller and two beside me, and it wanted to ravage my children. That's a fight worth having. And trying to discern those uh, can be profoundly difficult. And as I've, by, by God's grace, gotten older and more mature, um, I, don't, I don't like a fight. I don't enjoy a fight. I don't look for fights. I don't try to find fights. I don't, I don't pick a fight. Um, but there's some that you have to have. And there's times that, that there's no other option but to fight. And if you don't fight, you're going to die. You're going to lose. And the cause is worth it. And certainly, the cause of following Christ, of doing God's work, of doing ministry for God's glory, God's way, it's worth it. It's worth it. And so, then when we're in the midst of it, when we're thrown into that kind of conflict, how do, how do we fight? And, and how do we wrestle through those sorts of things? That's really where we're at in Nehemiah this morning. Uh, Nehemiah has said we're going to rebuild the city walls. They've got some enemies that have been identified so we can have an escalating con conflict. Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab. They're going to oppose him. They, they are viscerally opposed to Nehemiah. That doesn't work. Chapter 3, everybody goes and we have this list of 50 plus individuals that jump in and they start building the walls and they're doing the work of the ministry. And, and so you'd kind of be left hanging. Well, what about these guys that were opposed to it? Chapter 4 introduces them to us again. We're going to work our way through the first six verses of chapter four. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they actually have a chapter break after verse six. They see it as all running together. They want you to think that when the enemy is opposing a leader, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem went after Nehemiah first. Uh, they never take their, uh, their gun sights off of him. But if you get on board for ministry too, they're going to start shooting at you as well. And that's what happens. And, and so they, they couldn't get Nehemiah to stop, so now we're going to turn our attention 
also toward the people. And you'll kind of end up with this cycle through Nehemiah of at times them specifically going after Nehemiah and other times them going after the people doing the work. Just the reality is this. If you're going to do ministry, at some point Satan's going to get mad and try to stop you. And it's going to be ugly. Because he doesn't fight fair. And he's going to do whatever he can to stop the work of God. And so the first six verses, we're going to walk through and see how they oppose Nehemiah and really the people. And so let's just read those. Follow along in your Bible with me this morning as I read Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And just have it in the back of your head, in the back of your mind as we read these. The way Satan is maybe even opposing the ministry that he's called you to do right now in your life. And that ministry could be neighborhood. It could be in your workplace. It could be just in your marriage and your parenting and relationships with your own parents, grandparents. It, it, it could be in evangelism. It could be in discipleship, counseling, trying to help people overcome sin habit problems. It could be in comfort, mercy ministry, and just trying to get there and be there and, and care for people. It could be in your own sanctification, your own flesh that you're fighting intensely and you feel like there's some sins in your life. It, it, it's like, am I ever going to overcome these? Am I ever going to have victory? Maybe health issues where you're finding discouragement and intense, maybe even despair and questioning about what are prognosis and what are test results and what's going to happen here. Because you're going to learn this morning, how do we fight? And it's a fight worth having. So Nehemiah chapter 4, verses, verse 1. Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on, a, on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Aristotle famously said that criticism is something you can avoid easily. By saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Jesus tells us in Luke, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. John Wesley, one time in his journal, uh, was in the midst of ministry, and he finished his day, and he was famous for journaling. And as he finished his day, he wrote in his journal that I went through the entire day today without receiving one criticism. I wonder if I'm even saved. He was simply acknowledging the fact that if you follow Christ, there's always going to be somebody criticizing you. If you were watching a group of runners and they were running over loose dirt and so that billows of dust were flying up, oftentimes you look at that and you say, well, the only person you'll be able to see is the one in the lead because the dust covers everybody else that's following. But be sure of this, if that one guy in the lead is getting kicked from behind a lot. The reality is every single one of us will face unjust, unkind, ungodly criticisms. I've had some people over the years come to me 
with concerns even. I, I think legitimate, heartfelt concerns where they haven't experienced a lot of opposition in their life. They haven't experienced a lot of criticism and they wonder if that means that there's something deficient in them. They say, I've been following Jesus and I haven't experienced the kind of opposition you talk about or the criticism you're mentioning. Is there something wrong with me? And you know what my answer is? It's actually this, maybe. Now, the reality is this, is God can bring you and I into seasons where it seems like the road is smooth and, and everything is light and easy. But Jesus isn't lying here. And if you follow Christ long enough and close enough, you will experience opposition from the enemy. And it will often take the form of criticism, undue criticism, wrong criticism, offensive words, unkind things, slander, lies, gossip, whatever. And so when someone asks, I haven't experienced it, and my answer is maybe what I mean is, is very sincerely this. It may be that you haven't followed Christ long enough to receive this. But if you've followed Christ for any length of time and you haven't experienced this, I, I'm left with one of two options. Either Jesus is wrong, wonder how we're going to go with that one. Or maybe the reality is you've been unwilling to do and say those things that would incite the anger and the wrath of the enemy. Maybe you've dodged a fight because of cowardice. Because you're friends with everybody. Because Jesus isn't wrong. And so I would say this, if you follow Christ closely enough for any length of time, it's not that it might happen. It will happen. And in that moment, you're going to need to know, what do I do? Criticisms and attacks are primary means of Satan to quench our zeal for God. To dampen the fires of wanting to do the Lord's work. In Pilgrim's Progress, he tells of a particular spot where Christian sees these flames that believers are experiencing that are intended to purify them. Because the Bible tells us that when we go through trials of all kinds, and one of the kinds of trials we go through is the opposition of the enemy. He says when we go through these fires, they reveal our faith, right? Like you take something, you stick it in the fire, if it's not real, it's going to get burned up into, into ash. It's worthless. And so fires of life. And so just to drill down very specifically, the fires of opposition of the enemy at times reveal that people never believed. Life got hard and they quit following. But other things it does is it purifies our faith. It, it dries, the dross rises to the surface. You can skim it off so you end up with a purer faith. And then it, it strengthens our faith like, faith like tempering steel. The opposition of Satan will do that in our lives. And so Christian is standing there because what he witnesses as these believers are experiencing these fires is the fire never seems to die, even though there's a man in front of him who's dumping water on it trying to put out the fires. And it's recognized in Pilgrim's Progress, the one trying to put out the fires that God uses to purify, strengthen, and reveal our faith is none other than Satan himself. Now, I just want you to wrap your mind around that. 
The reality that because God loves us, if we're his children, Hebrews chapter 12, he chastens and disciplines every one of us, and he does it with fires. And some of those fires, the opposition of the enemy. And so he wonders, if Satan is constantly trying to get us out of the fire, why is it still there? And on the other side of the wall, there was somebody pouring oil on the fire, and it was God himself. Because God is passionate about it, making us more like Christ. I just want you to know that when you're experiencing opposition, it means you're on the right road. But we live in a world that's going to tell you, no, you're not. Somehow you can follow Jesus and everybody be happy with you. And Jesus makes it very clear that that cannot happen. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. You can, tell, you can tell a lot more about a person by who it is they've made mad. Than the people, who did Jesus make angry? The religious leaders, the elite, the Pharisees. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? Jesus made hypocrites mad. Jesus made wicked people uncomfortable. And so what do we do when we begin to face this opposition? We go through the fires. There's so many ways we could go after it. But this morning, I, it's, I think it's just very clear. I don't think it's very deep, to be honest with you. But I, I think it's super helpful and a needed reminder. When the enemy attacks, it's a call to pray and obey. It's, and it's that simple. And I actually hope for you this morning it would be that simple for you to take away and remember very clearly. When the enemy is attacking, it is time to pray and obey. And so the first thing we can do is understand our enemy here a little bit. We want to know our enemy. Um, we want to know his tactics, his battle plans. I've always been fascinated by this passage from Paul in Corinthians. He said, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, Paul, interestingly enough, in the context, he's specifically speaking about forgiveness. They had a man in their church who was having an illicit affair uh, he would not repent of his sinful behavior, so they disciplined him out of the church. They put him out of the church. And between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the man repents. He turns from his sin. He abandons his immoral lifestyle. And he comes back to the church um, as a sign of saying, I've, I've turned back to God. Please welcome me back. And the church didn't want to welcome him back. And Paul is basically saying, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. What does he mean by that? One of Satan's designs, and I know this is a terror in your own heart. <coughs> 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 opposition of the enemy, um, right? Uh, the world we live in. Um, one of the ways, and okay, so let me ask you this. Have you ever felt too sinful for church or Christian people? That's one of his tactics. And that's Paul's point. No, if you repent, you come, we, we welcome you in. Come back. None of us are better than another. And so Paul's saying, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. He would want the church to sit in this hyper-judgmental position that you can't, you can't have committed a horrific... The man was having an affair with his stepmom. That was twisted in Corinth, which is like hedonism central compared to... Like, we don't have a place on the planet that's like Corinth. And to them, that was way out of bounds. This man repents... And you turn from your sin. You say, I'm going to follow Jesus. The church says, praise God, we're with you. We don't judge you. That You're following Jesus, so are we. But one of Satan's designs would be that there's somehow some sin, some wickedness, some depravity that, that can't be forgiven, and that's not true. And so Paul says, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs, that Satan wouldn't want us to forgive and bring 
this brother, dear brother back in. That's the context. But the truth here is what Paul is saying is that we should be aware of how our enemy works. We didn't win the Revolutionary War because we had better generals. We didn't. We didn't have better generals. We didn't have more money. We didn't have better arms. We didn't have better troops. We won because we changed how warfare was conducted. We won by guerrilla warfare. That's how we won. And so we changed the whole thing because we knew the enemy. We knew the Redcoats are just going to march out here in formation. We're like, why would we just try to march out to them? These guys that are well-drilled, they're going to be able to fire their muskets far faster than us. You know what? Let's stay in the trees and shoot them. Well, that's just not fair. Look, all's fair in love and war, right? Right? I used to be in a dorm. I had guys that have a crush on a girl. They'd be like, I I'm like, go ask her out. They'd be like, I don't know, man. She's got, she, she's, she might be with this guy. And I'm like, well, I mean, all respect aside, he's a loser. But like, if there ain't two rings on the finger, all's fair in love and war. And they're like, Steve. Yeah, they married with kids now. <laughs> know your enemy. That's what Paul's saying. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. What we can recognize here then is one of the ways Satan attacks. This method of attack of using people to say ungodly things, to criticize, to question us. The interesting thing is we just finished the book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible, first book written really of the Old Testament, and that's exactly what Satan did through his friends. You remember that? All these accusations against Job, all these un unrealistic criticisms, ungodly texts. Well, interestingly enough, Nehemiah is the last historical book and Satan's still doing it. You know, spoiler alert, if he did it over the thousands of years between Job and Nehemiah, we're a couple thousand years removed. Do you think it's still happening? Yes. And so we need to understand it. The first one we see is Sambalot's accusations. Now, Sambalot's an interesting character here because he grows increasingly angry over what's happening. And it's much clearer to, in the Hebrew language than it is in our English language. Um, they, they just have a little wider range with some of their prefixes to describe it. And so if you just look back in chapter 2, verse 10, we're starting to get introduced to this guy, Sambalot. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly. Uh, it would be a phrase, <coughs> excuse me, that we would say someone is indignant of something. It really would even have the idea of like rolling your eyes at someone. You ever been standing in the line at Walmart and somebody cuts in and you're like, okay, Mr. Entitled? That's, that, that's this. It's, in, it's indignant. Or you're driving in the highway, you're trying to zipper merge because you're trying to, hey, I'm tempted, man, because people in Carolina do not know how to drive, right? So, um, but, but you zipper merge like you're trying to, but then you always got some fool, right, who feels like he's going to drive 90 mile an hour down the emergency lane and then whip in at the last minute. You're a little indignant, aren't you? You're a little indignant. If you're not, you ought to be. It's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. If you're doing that, just take this as a kind pastoral rebuke. It's, it's, it's like you're irritated and you're like bothered, but there's like not a lot you can do about it yet. That's where he starts, but he progresses from there. You get down to chapter 2, verse 19. Suddenly we got a plan together and Sambalot shows up again. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
Now, this attack seems much more personal. While Nehemiah says that he's saying it to the group of them, linguistically, it seems like they're more specifically going directly after Nehemiah here. But the word there is an angrier state. It's more than just an indignant, I can't believe you're doing this. It's now I'm mad that you're doing this. But by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 1, it's a much darker tone. The language is actually a wording that would indicate an, like an anger you can't turn away from. Have you ever seen somebody they are so angry, it's like they can't be calmed down? That's what this is. It's a rage. It's an uncontrolled, it's a terrifying rage. But chapter 4, verse 1 Sambalot's really arriving at a point where he is ready to do just about anything, and it's personal for him. The kind of anger that he has, it's a how dare Nehemiah and these Jews defy me. You ever had dealings with somebody like that? There's no, there's no room for disagreement. It's their way or the highway. And they get angry if you don't do exactly what they say, when they say it, how they say it. That's, that's this guy. Sambalat is filled with this rage and this anger at this point. And so the way it comes out is in a series of five questions that really reveal four accusations. Because we can take question one and two together. And so the first ones that he says are these. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? And it's really a way of saying you are too weak to do this. Feeble. It's a commentary on their weakness that he perceives in them. It's like saying they lack the energy or the ability to help themselves. It would be like hearing an infant crying and saying, what are they going to do? Change themselves? Feed themselves? Dress themselves? Bathe themselves? You're a baby. They're too feeble to do it. Or working in a nursing home and an older person in need of assistance suddenly trying to climb out of bed when they really should wait for help and do it all themselves. They're too feeble to do it. This is what Sambalot's saying about grown adults. 50 plus people led by Nehemiah uh, the, the one guy and his daughters, the goldsmiths, the, the, the perfumers, the merchants, the Levites, the priests, he said, you are a bunch of feeble people. You're too weak to do the job that you're trying to do. Every one of us has an internal voice in us all the time that shouts at us that we're too weak for this job. We're too ugly. We're not talented enough. We're too frail, we're too stupid to do this thing. Remember the language that Nehemiah used to describe all the way back in chapter 2, verse 18? He says that they strengthened their hands for the work. It, it really means that they got worked up like a team or like a sports team in the tunnel, a football team before they run out on the field where they're, they're getting hyped up and ready to go. All these sports teams, they all have their... They're opening music, right? And Virginia Tech famously plays Metallica's Enter Sandman. It is a hard rock, heavy metal jamming tune that when you listen to it, I'll just be honest, you're ready to fight somebody. 
It's, it's perfect for football. Right? Nobody walks down into a boxing or MMA match listening to nursery rhymes. This, this has this concept that these guys, when they've heard what Nehemiah said, and Nehemiah has called them to do God's work, they've looked at each other and they said, we can do this in God's power. We can do this in God's strength. Let's get about the work. Yes, let's do it. I'll, I'll be on my part of the wall tomorrow morning. You be on your part of the wall tomorrow morning. Let's get it done. That's what they've done. And now they've got a guy saying, you're too weak to this. And internally, they have a voice telling them they're too weak. Don't raise your hands. But how many times have you thought in your ministry context, your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your neighborhood, your evangelism, your church work, your church ministry, have you thought, I'm too weak for this? I'm not smart enough for this. I don't have the patience for this. I don't have the strength for this. I can't do it. One of the most devastating things the enemy will do is he'll send people into your life who will shout at you the same fears and insecurities that your own heart is saying. They can't be done. You can't do it. You're too weak for this. Sam Balot is using a microphone to say with their own heart, cries at them, we are too weak to do this job. He goes on from that, asks another question. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Sacrifice is looking forward to the day when it would be done and they would offer sacrifices and thanksgiving to God. And so what Sambalot is saying is you're never going to finish this job. Two and a half miles, eight foot thick walls, 40 feet high. How will this job ever get done? For a, over a hundred years, they've navigated through and around the rubble. There's piles of rubble where they've cleared off the street for people to walk past. Some people have even taken some of the burned out broken stones and probably used it to try to build a house or a shelter for animals or some kind of table in their back courtyard. And now they've got to gather all this rubble together. For over 100 years, this has been their existence. This is what we've always done. And trying to get a cart out of the ruts is just incredibly difficult. And Sambalot's saying, you're never going to finish the job. It's never going to happen. You'll never be done. Does your heart ever think that way in discouragement? Maybe it voices it this way. This difficult season that I'm in, the moment that I'm in is the rest of my life. It's always going to be this hard. It's always going to be this dark. It's always going to be this discouraging. It's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's always going to be this. It's always, always, always. Why should I keep even building them? It's never going to be done. There's never going to come a moment, and he makes this all about worship, there's never going to come a moment when you're going to be able to say, praise God, look at what he has done. That's what he's saying. Once again, does your heart ever think that? This is going to last forever? It will always be this way? He goes to the next question, though. Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? It's kind of funny because it's the flip side of it. All of this is happening, uh, we read it at the start, when the walls were about halfway done. So they had connected them all. So they're about 20 feet high or they're, they're really high but only about four feet thick. They're, they're about halfway done. That's, this is what happens when a cupbearer gives the building report. Right? They're about halfway. We were like, what, what halfway? Halfway. And then we got Sambalot showing up and basically saying, what do you, wh 
You think you're going to finish it up that fast? You don't know what you're doing. You are naive. How in the world have you built this much wall this quickly? What do you think you're going to be done tomorrow? You think somehow you're going to wrap this all up and everything's going to be easy breezy from now on? Smooth sailing? It must mean they're doing a bad job. There's no way it should go this quick. I remember starting <coughs> doing <coughs> framing and construction and framing up a long wall. And um, then we were supposed to frame up this wall and then drywall it. We had two identical walls. And the guys were giving me a hard time. Pretty heavy hazing in construction, at least where I was at. So happens when you work with a bunch of felons. Um, and they, they were like, we're going to race. And if you can hang more on your side than this guy over there, you're going to win. And whoever loses has to buy lunch for everybody. And so we, we set to racing. And we're, we're putting in studs, metal studs, throwing up sheets of drywall, but screwing them in place, doing it all the way, all the way, all the way. And we got about halfway done. It was me and my, the mechanic, Greg, and myself working. And I look over my shoulder, and Shane was over here hanging drywall. He was easily about 10 sheets of drywall ahead of us. And I remember thinking, oh, no, great. Here goes my paycheck. Because when a guy finds out you're buying him lunch, he doesn't order two cheeseburgers. And so I'm like, ah, oh. well, we get to the end, and he's like, I won, I won, I won. And he had beaten us, I don't even remember how many sheets of drywall, he had blown us out of the water. And we were like, oh, man, this, this is crazy. How did this guy do this? And he's rubbing it and our nose in it and just mocking us incessantly. And then I walked over to his wall, and he had only put about half the screws in his sheets that they needed. He'd done a terrible job. That's how he'd finished so quick. You could literally just take this sheet of drywall and pull it, and you'd rip it right off the studs. What happens if you don't know what you're doing? What happens when you're in a spot doing a job, and everything seems to be going really easy? You're, you're at some point, if you have any self-awareness, you'll be tempted to think, I must be doing something wrong. I actually already don't know what I'm doing. And this is going way too smooth. Goldsmiths slinging mortar. Perfumers carrying stones. Priests building walls. And that's Sambalot's accusation. And it strikes right to our heart. And you know what it robs us of? God's blessing. Because sometimes God's in the work and it goes a lot smoother and easier than you could ever have imagined. They build this whole wall in 52 days. It's unbelievable. And sometimes God is on the move in ways and he's doing work and ministry context that you don't even see, don't even realize. And then it's like, man, there's momentum building and I see what God's doing. I, something must be off. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop mentality. And what Sambalot's really saying is you're clueless. And it's almost like he's saying what they would have already question in their own mind. Do I even know what I'm doing? The last one is that you're wasting your time. He says, will you revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You don't have any power to do this. Now, I actually love the imagery of this because I, I, I don't have to say this. This is what Sambalot is saying. Could you walk into a graveyard and make tombs live? Well, no, I can't, but I know the one who can. 
when he takes Ezekiel and Ezekiel is questioning ministry, what do I do and how does this work? God says, go to this valley of dry bones where there's been a massive battle and he's standing there and there's just thousands of skeletons that have been picked clean by the buzzards and the coyotes. And he says, preach to them. So crazy prophet starts preaching because he's going to obey God. And God sends a wind and he literally begins to bring muscle and sinew and organs and actual flesh onto these bones. Then he rises them up and breathes life into them. And he says, this is what it's like, get this now, when you and I do gospel ministry, we look like crazy people working in graveyards, but we serve a God who loves to make the dead things live. There's a lot of churches that would have gotten an amen, by the way, but that's okay. <laughs> because what he's saying is, how do you make these stones that are burned and dead come alive? You know what? We can't. How do I do ministry in my power? I can't. How do I put one foot in front of the other in deep, dark days? I can't. How do I love and serve friends and family, spouse and children, parents? How do I? I can't. You can't. And the enemy loves to send people that will remind you of your complete powerlessness and your inability but we serve the God who stood in front of a tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out. And it's a good thing he named him by name or every tomb in that graveyard would have popped open. Because when Jesus is on the move, when God's power is on the move, it is an unstoppable force of life over death. The enemy wants to say you have no power and you're wasting your time. It would be a waste of time if it wasn't for the fact that we do what we do in God's power and not our own. Well, Tobiah joins on and Tobiah fashions himself as some kind of poet. He thinks he's a funny guy. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He's like the bully's little crony, the audience. Remember this kid one time was teasing me and he was saying stuff to me and all this. And then he had some little kid next to him. And everything he'd say, the little kid would be like, yeah. You're ugly and you smell funny. Yeah. I'm like, man, I almost want to pop that kid more than that kid. Like, what's your deal? And this is to buy the Ammonite. He goes, um, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. <laughs> Do you remember Job's friends? Job's friends said, the house you're building, Job, the, the wind from a moth's wings will blow it down. How poetic. It's that weak. It's that feeble. It's that frail. Branford's fox is the fox of this Middle East. It's known for how light it moves, how nimble it is, how its ability to climb quickly, to leave no trace. It's so fast. It's this commentary that something as weak, as tiny, as fast, as nimble as a fox, when it touches this wall, uh, then it's going to fall apart. And really what he's saying is the appearance of strength and the appearance of God getting the victory and the appearance of God's power is exactly that. It's just an appearance. You don't need strong opposition to blow you over. You just need light opposition. That's all it is, is light opposition, and it's going to blow you guys out of the water. 
I'm convinced that's part of the reason Jesus makes it very, very clear in the parable of the four soils. The one of the ways you can tell someone has genuine faith is how they come through trials. These aren't small trials. These are fierce trials. There is a testing that reveals God is in it. And Tobiah is saying when you're actually tested, it's all going to fall apart. And I just want you to notice this then about Satan's methods, about knowing our enemy. He's going to pick on your insecurities. That's what he's going to, and we're insecure about different things. Just like we probably have some common insecurities because that's just the nature of humanity. But we all want to also have other individualized insecurities that each one of us would carry. And the enemy is going to find ways to go after yours. You see, because Satan can't read your mind, but the way it works is you have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your flesh is already shouting things at you, and you're at war with your flesh and the power of the Spirit. Sometimes you're a little bit like Paul in Romans 7. The things that you would do, you don't do, and the things you're supposed to do, you're not doing. Well, Satan knows that that's the way believers are. He's been studying humanity for thousands upon thousands of years. He knows how we're structured, so he creates a world system that is going to be constantly appealing and attacking to what our flesh is already struggling with. And so one of those is our insecurities and our fears. And that's what they go after with every one of these things that they would be obviously insecure and fearful about. You're too weak. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not talented enough. You're not gifted enough. You can't do it in your own power. You're not strong enough. The work that you're doing is going to fall apart. You're naive to think that this will accomplish anything. There is a shame that we feel in our insecurities, a sense that we are less than, that we are unlovable, that we cannot do what God has called us to do. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and I think this is really, really important, so just hold and listen to this question, and we're all going to respond at the same time. Have you ever felt like, I don't, I don't belong here? Now, it could be for a variety of reasons. I don't belong here because of my age. I don't belong here because of my marital status. I don't belong here because of parenting status. I don't belong here because of my personal sin struggles. I don't, I don't belong here because I don't understand. I don't belong here because I'm not smart enough. I don't belong here because I'm not gifted enough. I don't belong here because I'm an outsider. I don't belong here because, because God knows that I'm just hanging on by my fingernails and I don't know how long I can hang. I don't belong here because these people are much stronger than I am in the faith. I don't belong here because they're much smarter than I am. They're much more mature than I am. I don't belong here because they're all immature for me. I don't belong here because I'm further down the road. I don't belong here because I'm not far enough down the road. I don't belong. I'm going to ask you in the count of three if you've ever felt that to raise your hand. One, two, Three. Now look around. Keep them up and look around. You think the enemy wants to get an inroad? He goes after our insecurities and our fears, doesn't he? And so what do we do? How do we, how do we fight? Well, Nehemiah gives us a path. First thing that we need to do, we, and we really put it under there, we need to know our God. Now, there's a lot we could pray. <coughs> there's a lot we could pray. And the first thing, it's going to be pray and obey, really simple takeaways. 
There's a lot we could pray in the midst of these conflicts, in the midst of satanic opposition. We could pray prayers of praise. God, thank you for your glory, for your power, your majesty. Thank you for bringing trials that reveal and strengthen my faith and purify it. We, get, we can, bring, we can um, praise God for writing the last chapter, right? So I'm in the middle of a hard chapter, but he wrote the last chapter. We go, he's going to win. He's going to get the victory. Um, I'm not who I am right now, but one day when he returns, I'll be revealed who I really am. And so we could pray. We could, we could pray prayers of petition, asking God for strength, for courage, for wisdom, for power, for sound mind, to know how to process and how to discern. We could ask God, we could petition God for maturity in our faith. Hebrews chapter uh, 4, uh, or excuse me, the end of chapter 5, where you're asking God to help you to discern between good and evil. So you can pray prayers of praise, you can pray prayers of petition. But Nehemiah prays what we call an imprecatory prayer. Literally, the word means to curse, to invoke a curse on our enemies. Now, go back and listen to what Nehemiah's prayer is. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That is some serious praying. And that's some scary praying. God is telling us something through Nehemiah here. Nehemiah is praying that Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem will experience what the children of Israel have experienced. Conquering forces that domineer them. It would reveal that their idols are broken. They would be consumed and held captive. They would be conquered and ruled over and they would suffer. Nehemiah is praying this for them as one who is a follower of God who's experienced all these things. Nehemiah is praying this because he knows this is how God says he deals with people who deny him. Children of Israel, God's covenant people didn't miss this. They experienced it. Nehemiah is basically saying, look, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If this is good for God's people, it's certainly good for his enemies. So God, bring it on them. He's quoting, in part, Jeremiah, who prayed the same thing. Yet you, O Lord, know all they're plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Nehemiah's prayer is for justice. He recognizes that while these are his enemies, more importantly, they are the enemies of God. Their attacks are because of serving God. Their threats are because of obedience to God. So their real problem is with God. But here's my question. Should we ever pray something like this? How do we reconcile this with Jesus telling us very clearly, pray for those who persecute us and to even provide care for our enemies, Romans chapter 12. What do we do with this and turn the other cheek? Ask you for a coat, give them your cloak. So it's important to walk through it. There is a place for imprecatory prayers. Let me prove it to you. Hang on. So we get all uncomfortable. God just is grandpa in the sky handing out Tootsie Rolls. So that's what his children do. We can't talk about justice or judgment, but Nehemiah sure wasn't ashamed to do it. First and foremost, Jesus actually commands us to pray in a way that would cry for judgment. What if I told you? What if I told you? What if I said to you, you've actually already prayed imprecatory prayers, whether you realize it or not? I have, ne I have ne Steve, I have never asked God to judge anybody. Mm -mm, I would not do that. Really? You've never prayed your kingdom come, your will be done? 
What do you think is going to happen when his kingdom comes? Fast forward, book of Revelation, he shows up on a white horse, whipping a sword out of his mouth, hacking down his enemies. Just so you know. Not everybody gets in at the end. There's some fierce judgment coming. And when you and I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, in part, we are invoking God's just wrath on the wicked. There is, you, it's unavoidable. He doesn't show up and say, oh, yes, I, I know you have slaughtered thousands of my children. I like you anyway, come on in. It's not the way this ball is going to bounce. Jesus commanded us to pray in a way that would invoke his justice on the wicked and on the evil. Secondarily, Paul prays in a precatory way. These are only three examples of it. <laughs> in Galatians, Paul says he wishes they would be accursed. Later in Galatians, these guys, there's an argument in Galatia. I'll just get you know, grossly detailed because the Bible just deals with life. There's these guys claiming in Galatia that the Gentiles who got saved needed to all go get circumcised to really be saved. You get saved, and now you can do this. And it was really a way of saying you might say you follow Jesus, but unless you're following all the law, you don't actually follow Jesus yet. So you need to be circumcised. This is what Paul says. I wish they would emasculate themselves. You want to cut a little bit? I'd rather you cut it all. That's some straight up in-your-face judgment. Paul's not joking, and Paul's not sinfully in, in, in error there. Saints in heavenly perfection pray this way. That tells us something. That tells us that right and precatory prayers are not born out of my personal anger or yours. Because these are saints in heaven that have been martyred. They are now perfect in heaven. And what do they pray? God, how long until you bring judgment on the people who killed us? Bring it, Lord. Show them who's God. Punish the evil and the wicked. Jesus spoke condemnation against hypocrisy and evil. Matthew 23, listen to Jesus as he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. You serpents, you brood of vipers. He's not talking to his disciples about them. He's saying this to them. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that, on, so that you may come that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. Jesus told his disciples as they went out to preach, Luke 10, 10 through 16, whenever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you and hears me 
The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. I'm going to say that last part to you again. Because when you are walking in the power of the Spirit and doing God's work, you're doing ministry work. And what is that? Like, it's not this. This is ministry. Life is ministry. When you are disciplining your children, when you are pursuing your friend, when you are strengthening your marriage, when you are loving others, when you are evangelizing, you are discipling, you are counseling, and suddenly people turn on you and they start to reject you and start to speak evil against you and start to come after you. And it says the enemy's voice is coming after you. Listen to this. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Their beef is with Jesus, but they make it about you. And Jesus says to them, whoa, it will be better for the two cities that he rained fire and brimstone down upon than for them. Who did God get angry at in the book of Job? Job and his weak faith and his questioning? Not one time. Not once. Who did he get angry at and call to repent and say, you better go and make this right? His three friends who claimed to follow God and were speaking evil against their friend. That's who he went after. There is a time and a place for imprecatory prayers, but it's justice, not personal vengeance. Now that feels like a fine line. And I'm going to tell you this. If you are in a moment in a season where you're being attacked and you're like, man, I... Ready to pray some imprecatory prayers. If you can't have a confidence before God in that moment that it's not about personal vengeance and revenge, don't pray imprecatory prayers. Don't do it. It's interesting because in 1 John, he tells you, he tells us as believers, if it's obvious to us that someone is committing the sin that's unforgivable, don't pray for them. This is serious stuff, isn't it? This is like some, this is not popular content. I know that. Not in our culture. It cannot be about you. When Jeremiah prays this, he doesn't specifically even know. And so when he talks about their plan to kill him, he's talking about their sin being revealed. God expose who they are and what they're doing. It's interesting, the language that Nehemiah uses here, where it talks about not covering it all, what he's saying is God expose who they really are. Bring to light their hypocrisy, their lying, their cheating, their stealing, their murdering, their anger. Bring to light their wickedness because the enemy likes to masquerade how? As a horned devil walking around like he's at an ACDC concert? The last time I checked, he likes to masquerade as an angel of light. And that really will burn your bacon, isn't it? When somebody's following Satan and the evil one, but they want to act like they're following Jesus. Who did Jesus get most mad at? The hypocrites. And so what it is, is to pray, it's a prayer that says expose, because justice exposes, doesn't it? Justice reveals. Wherever you're at on the case, I don't really care. I don't have a dog in that fight. But it's kind of hard when you claim you were never at a kennel and they got a video of you there. isn't it? Exposure. This isn't about you getting your licks in on them. This is about God's glory and justice being revealed. 
It's very clear in Romans 12 that vengeance is God. He will repay. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Do you know what we're praying? We're praying that God would do what he said he was going to do in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, he says, by their fruits you'll know them. One day they're going to show up to me and say, God, didn't I do all these wonderful things? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they never repented and believed. That was evident, listen now, through obedience. You can say whatever you want to say. You can claim whatever you want to claim. If you are not obeying Christ, you are not following Christ. You don't know him. And so when you're praying this, you're like, God, would you just expose and reveal who this person really is? God, would you in your justice get zealous about your glory and the fact that this person is claiming your name but following the wicked one? That's what an imprecatory prayer is. Let justice be. You're praying that God would do what he already said he was going to do. Now, what's interesting is when you say, God, would you reveal your justice and you would do it. So let's just take a happenstance. Let's take a happenstance, right? <laughs> Father, pastor, and... I think he was in, he was in either Alberta or Toronto. His teenage daughter went out for a jog, and a man viciously assaulted her and murdered her in the woods. They had no idea who did it. How do you pray? How do you pray? Well, I got a 15-year-old daughter. I'm going to tell you how you pray. God, let justice be done on the head of whoever did this to my little girl. Your justice is far better than my justice. Your wrath is far greater than my wrath. I want vengeance, but I want to obey you more. Now, that could come out two ways. That guy could get caught. He could go to prison. Uh, he could never get caught, and one day he'll stand before the throne of God. Or it could be justice would reveal by suddenly God would awaken him, and he would go and confess his sin and own it and take whatever consequences happens because the wrath of God would be poured out on his son for this man's sake. Because no one is beyond. But when you are praying for justice, you can rest in God's version of justice. Right? That's what you're doing. It's not about personal vengeance at that point. It's about let God's justice happen. When Gary Ridgway, the Green River serial killer, stood in the courtroom, person, family after family after family after family after family, berated him, cursed him, screamed him. Then one man uh, got up and he, this man had viciously killed his daughter. And he stood there and he said, by God's grace, I can forgive you. And Gary Ridgway, a sociopath, dissolved into a puddle of tears in the courtroom. There is a power of God that could move in somebody. Pray that God's justice would be clear. Pray that judgment would be true. Pray that lies, hypocrisy, slander, gossip, and hidden sins are dealt with. Pray for God to deal justly and righteously. Pray for God to see, to hear, to recognize that this person hates him. That's why they're attacking me. Pray, be, be prepared for what he's going to do. Be prepared that sometimes he will not deal with it till the great day of judgment. Be prepared that like Corey Timboom, sometimes the Nazi guard will get saved and come and ask your forgiveness. But pray, get on your knees and pray. We fight on our knees first, but then we fight by moving. This is the last part, and we're all done. What did they do? He finishes praying, and what's the next thing that says that they did? Was it, so we built the wall. I love that. I love that. So we built the wall. We got right back to work. We are not going to let the enemy stop. That's what the enemy wants. More than anything, he wants you to stop. Keep on keeping on. Keep on obeying. You pray and you ask God, okay, what's the next right thing I, gotta, I can do? What's the next? Like the voices 
in my own flesh are screaming against me, you're too weak, you're too stupid, you're, you're wrong, you can't do this, you're feeble, you're naive, you're building a terrible wall, it's not going to last. And then I got other people saying you're weak and you're ugly and you can't build the wall and it won't last. And God, I know that's not true because I'm trying to do it in your power and in your strength and I'm just trying to do the next right. What, what God, would you bring justice down? What do I do next? Pick up your trowel and start slinging some order. Do the next right thing. That's all you got to worry about. Some of you are day 25 of wall building and Satan is screaming at you. And I'm calling you to get on your knees and pray and then get moving. You pray and you obey. We fight because we value God's glory over our comfort. We fight because anything worth doing is going to cost us. We fight because there's right and wrong, there's truth and lies, and God is on mission to make his glory known and his glory shown. We fight because they're right. I can't make dead rocks live. But I stand here before you as one who had a heart of stone. And my God took out a heart of stone and put in a living heart. They're right. I don't have the power. You don't have the power. But we serve the one who does. And so I call us to pray and obey because the fight is worth it. Father, we thank you for the courage, uh, like Nehemiah's builders who strengthened their hands for the work. I pray that you would help us to strengthen our hands for the work. God, uh, may we even embrace the reality that it is Christ's power, it's Christ's strength. It's not ours. Our arms are too weak, our legs are too weak, there's not enough air in our lungs. And so, Lord, help us to breathe purified, sanctified air, being reminded that we are on mission for your glory. And, Father, one day, one day, like soldiers sitting in a VFW recounting exploits, one day we'll sit across from David and hear him talk about Goliath and we'll tell him about the day that we saw victory in our lives. And we'll hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego